Uh, far as Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this wonderful opportunity, this privilege to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father, the faith that you've given us by grace. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in ways that are just unimaginable, in ways that are breathtaking and stupendous and that just keep giving to us day upon day and day after day, as your word says, grace upon grace. Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to live this life and to carry this precious pearl, the gospel of your son, out to the corners of this world. Father, what a privilege that is. May we never become familiar with it. We pray for those that are ill in the congregation that would love to be here this evening but cannot be for a variety of reasons. We're so thankful for those that are able to make it here. We pray for those that are lost as well, Father, that we might be given the opportunity to give them the gospel and share, the, and share with them the truth that sets them free. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross cancel out that debt and make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is good and who gets to define it? We're going to um, take this relatively slow um, because it's a bigger concept than you might think. And um, for the sake of sort of edifying us and in, in establishing um, establishing uh, what we think we already know in Scripture about the concept of goodness. We're going to take it slow. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture um, because God, who is intrinsically good, reveals himself in myriad ways, and that's the way we're going to look at it from Scripture's perspective. I was studying today and came across this quote that really got me thinking on this topic. It's from a gentleman by the name of Pastor Mark Dever. God defines what is good. That's who defines it. And you could just stop there and think about that for a while like I did uh, this today and this afternoon. God defines what is good. That's what you have to remember. It's not what you think is good. It's not what man thinks is good. It's what God says is good. God defines what is good. Goodness or righteousness is not an external standard that God effortlessly and perfectly conforms to. In other words, he's not conforming to some definition that's beyond him. That's what we do, but he's God. We are transformed. We are conformed, not to the things of this world. We conform. He does not conform. He is goodness. He is perfect righteousness. And so if we're looking for a definition, we might want to look at the revelation of guess who? God. God defines what is good. Goodness or righteousness is not an external standard that God effortlessly and perfectly conforms to. Rather, goodness is a way of describing God in all his actions and commands. When's the last time you thought of it that way? That goodness is a way of describing God 
and all his actions, actions and all his commands. I think this is a wonderfully sobering way to look at the concept of goodness, for I think that the world has it defined drastically wrong. For example, God says that a person who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is counted a sin. That's James 4.17. But the world says that if you can justify said sin somehow, like, say, Robin Hood, who steals from the rich to give to the poor, then that is good, too. But you see, Robin Hood was a thief. God never describes thievery as good, no matter how man would like to slice it up and justify it. So I get you. I hope you get the point. I hope another perfect example, the one that drives me completely mad, is romance. I don't know about you, but I am really tired of hearing people celebrate ungodly romances. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of watching it. I'm tired of seeing it. I'm tired of seeing people that are supposed to be godly celebrating it. If it's wrong, then you know what? It's wrong. Period. If it's wrong, and the Bible says it's wrong, and God, who is intrinsically good, says it's wrong, then it's wrong. Period. God doesn't turn a blind eye to say something like extramarital sex just because two people claim to be in love. There's no goodness in that. That's evil. And people will try to justify it all the time. Oh, but we're in love. I think of young kids even. Oh, but we're in love. I mean, parents are teaching their kids nowadays, as long as you love each other and be, practice safe sex. There's no justifying that. You know why? Because God says it's wrong. You understand? And if it's wrong then it's wrong. If we're trying to get to the definition of good, then we have to see what is revealed by God, who is intrinsically good. And God says that's wrong. And so therefore it's wrong. It's not good. And it's that simple. But man, in his you know, slippery ways, tries to justify things. Again, the point on the board, God defines what is good. Period. It's not how you feel, it's not your emotion, but it feels so good. That's another word. I almost feel like taking the word feel and burning it. Because everything's, oh, it feels good, or it feels right, or it feels bad, or it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel that. Shut up. I don't want to hear about how you feel anymore. What does this have to say about how you feel? What does this have to say about what it is you're contemplating? Enough with the emotional garbage. Put it away. It's either right or wrong by the word of God. But the world will tell you, how does it make you feel? And they even sell the gospel on feelings. And that's the cheap, watered-down gospel that we fought tooth and nail over for the last two years. God defines what is good. Goodness or righteousness is not an external standard that God effortlessly and perfectly conforms to. Rather, goodness is a way of describing God 
and all his actions and commands. And so you have to look at it that way. It's something that emits from his essence. It's not something that he is conforming to. So this is a perfect place to launch into our lesson this evening. And do yourselves a big favor right now as a side note. Do not forget all of the lessons we just came from regarding the apostles being so very encouraging. Because, you know, they too had to learn what good is. We may end up back with them in short order. I'm not sure. Uh, so for the sake of continuity, even keep in mind the principles we partook in over the past few months. Again, just remember that phrase, God defines what is good. And he is not bound by some external framework. He is good. So whenever God reveals himself to mankind, we call this obviously a revelation. And so whenever, again, he reveals himself being intrinsically good, he is, in essence, giving us a definition for goodness. He says, do you want to know what goodness is? Look at me. Look at how I've revealed myself to you. I am goodness. I am intrinsically good. I am intrinsically righteous. I am intrinsically just. I have perfect integrity. I'm all these things and much, much more. I'm a perfect master. I'm sovereign. I'm king of kings, lord of lords, says Jesus even. So if you're looking for goodness, you look to God. Not the God of this world. Because he's got a whole nother set of standards that are used and propagated uh, and they slip into our consciences, if you would, uh, our subconsciouses even. And, and before we know it, we're often running in the wrong direction and thinking the wrong things and being emotional basket cases and all spun up and not figuring out why we're in, why we're in such misery all the time. But, you know, for a moment we felt good, didn't we? We felt really good when we were sinning our butts off. But it felt really good. <laughs> right? And that's how people justify things. But it feels right. It feels good. Too bad. It's not. If it's not godly, it's not good. As I mentioned on Sunday, there are two types of revelation. So let's use the word itself, since it is self-authenticating, to establish the biblical doctrine of goodness. I'm not going to go through some great discourse um, on this. We're going to look at uh, enough scripture to be um, convinced on this idea of revelation as it ties to goodness itself. So here's what we're about to read. We're going to go to Psalm 19 in a moment, but up here on the board, the Psalm uh, 19, 1 through 14, is split. It actually splits it out for us, and I mentioned these two terms on Sunday, general versus special revelation. General revelation is God's witnesses or witness of himself through creation. That's Psalm 19, 1 to 6. Special revelation, God reveals himself directly through Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, acts, etc. And that's Psalm 19, 7 to 14. So we have two different ways that God reveals himself. And this is what we're going to study up front, because we're trying to get to the answer, well, what is good and who gets to define it? Where should we get our definition? Well, if God is intrinsically good, then shouldn't we look at the revelation of him? Well, how does he reveal himself? In two ways, generally and specially. General creation, especially through direct 
uh, interaction, if you would. The main, the main way for most of us is through Holy Scripture. So let's establish this by means of the Word. Go to Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, 1. We'll look at the general side. That's probably all we're going to get to this evening. Uh, the general revelation. And what does Scripture have to say about general revelation? Well, it says a lot, but it doesn't say everything. And that's what we're going to learn. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Well, there's a good start, isn't it? How about that? The heavens, that's part of creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his, of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as, strong man, as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. How about that? Think about heaven and earth. Think about the sun. Think of the solar system itself. I mean, these things are magnificent magnificent, so large and so expansive that it's hard for us to even comprehend. To this day, one of the hardest things I believe to comp try to comprehend is where does space end? Like when you think, that's hard, right? When you think about it, there's no... Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's pretty big. That's really big. And we have like super, uh, you know, magnifying uh, scopes. What do you call those things? Microscopes. That telescope. You know what I meant. <laughs> See how it is? Telescopes. We have these huge telescopes, and they only see so far. And then you learn that we're seeing old light to boot. Light that existed years ago. What? Makes you feel little, doesn't it? Yeah, it makes God really big, considering what we just read. Considering he hung all these planets in perfect orbits. We're really little. Our lives are, I don't want to say insignificant, because in the, from God's perspective, we're not insignificant. But from a pure physicality perspective, if you don't see God in the heavens and the earth and the sun... Just by looking up on a clear day, I don't know what to tell you, or a clear night. That's general revelation. What we see in this beautifully poetic passage is general revelation, which is God's witness of himself through creation. Now let's look at some more scripture on this. Go to Acts 14.16. Acts 14.16. This is what we call general revelation. Again, don't forget the title. You know, what is good and who gets to define it? Acts 14, 16. 
In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. How about that? How about up here on the board? In terms of general revelation, how about divine providence? How about the fact that most of you are probably, well, a lot of you are drinking from coffee beans and I don't know what that is, some probably fruit, maybe some water from a spring. You know, these are things that come from creation. These are your food and drink, are they not? Well, who's provided them for you? God has, perfectly. What if you lived on a world that, world that barely sustained human life and it was like dog eat dog? Do you get what I'm getting at? Divine providence. This is a part of general revelation as described in the Bible. The fact that nature provides for us is indicative of God's intrinsic goodness. We have food to eat. We have things to drink. He did not leave himself without witness. That should witness to you. Those are the things that we get so familiar with. But those are the truly good things, aren't they? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't be satisfied with food and drink. What's good is gluttony. You've got to have more food and drink than your neighbor. Because that's what the God of this world says is good. It's not just good to eat and be merry and be glad to be alive and enjoy the divine providence of God. No way. You've got to have more than enough. You've got to be a stinking glutton. That's not funny to anybody? What? Striking home? You gotta be a <laughs> you gotta be a glutton. I'm serious. You have to be a glutton for it to be good by the world standards. Acts 17 20. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Paul and Barnabas are speaking these things. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, that's general revelation right there. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You see, even Paul is posturing his argument to these pagans, if you would, these uh, evil worshipers, on the idea of general, general revelation. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Some more. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. There's some more for you. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. There's some more for you. That they would seek God. You see the result? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. 
being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Up here on the board, divine nature is not like gold or silver or stone, even though man might tend to label such things as good. The goodness of God transcends such things. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Here's another passage in support of the concept of general revelation. Go to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. All we're doing is surveying Scripture. This is the lovely thing about Revelation. You just let the Word do it for you. And the Word describes what general revelation is. So it's funny because the special revelation that we haven't spoken of yet, the Word of God, is actually what points out what general revelation is. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. I mean, that's general revelation right there. His eternal power. Look, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so you can see what happens when man rejects general revelation. One more passage on this. Go to Romans 10, 17. Romans 10, 17. Again, we're just establishing what general revelation is, how it's described in the special revelation, which is the Word of God. Romans 10, 17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice, and this is a reference, remember, we just saw this in Psalm 19.4. This is a cross-reference back to where we started. Their voice, a reference to the heavens, has gone out into all the earth in their words to the ends of the world. So God reveals himself, in other words, through nature, through creation. 
Again, our anchor passage for general revelation is what we read, Psalm 19, 1 through 6, up here on the board. Again, this is our framework. General revelation is God's witness of himself through creation. Special revelation, God reveals himself directly. Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, acts. Let's read our anchor passage again. Go to Psalm 19, 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. This is why people are without excuse. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, that's what we just read, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So, if we're in search of what is good and who gets to define it, we have been given a glimpse already this evening just by considering God's general revelation of himself through creation. For example, I was just thinking, what about these guys? This is Pikes Peak. Those, that's the Rocky Mountains out in Colorado. How do you look at a mountain range like that and not see God? How do you not hear the voice of God when you look at what he's created for our enjoyment? He could have created just an expanse, right? We could be, I don't know, on just flat level, dirty, dirt flat surface and not be, I don't know, but he didn't do that. He did that. And then he gave you the faculties to appreciate it. How about the ocean? How about that? How about the beauty of, if you've ever been snorkeling or scuba diving or underwater, I guess, except maybe in a pool, you've seen... <laughs> Maybe you saw some good things in the pool. You've seen God's creation. How are you under there? And I think it's, what, two-thirds of the earth is water. The surface is water. There's an awful lot of ocean floor to behold, and it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. The colors are tremendous. How do you say that that happened by accident? I have no idea. It's ridiculous. How about deep space? How do you look into deep space? with a microscope or a telescope. <laughs> you might not see much in a microscope. How do you look into deep space and not behold his creation? How will you not belittled by it? You have to be one arrogant person to think beyond or above God. Or how about even looking back at our own so-called Mother Earth? How about that? How do you how do you look at that and not 
know that God exists. That's the point. And that's exactly what general revelation is. He said, I want you to know that my fingerprints are all over this thing. I don't want you to be confused. I want you to know. And I'm going to give you enough. I'm going to give you the faculties, if you would, to be able to appreciate what I've done. So how can a person not be humbled by the glory of God through his creation? Which means that even in the absence, now listen, this is why he did it, technically. Even in the absence of special revelation, for example, Holy Scripture, God will reveal himself to mankind. Even in the absence of Holy Scripture, God will reveal himself to mankind. This is something that we all need to keep in mind always, that even God's creation, which is technically voiceless, has a voice. It's voiceless. It doesn't speak to us. It speaks to us in another way. It speaks to us in a way that we were created to appreciate and to even orient to God as a result. I mean, God created us. I think man forgets this. Arrogant man definitely forgets this. That God created us a certain way so that we would appreciate what he's done, including his creation, that we would look out and not become familiar, but actually be drawn to him through his own creation. Just, it's magnificent. And that's part of why he made us the way he made us. I mean, why do you like, why, all right, is anybody, I mean, most of you like to hold a baby, why? They smell good. They're cuddly, they're soft, right? You feel their skin, it's like there's nothing on earth like a baby's skin. It's like the most cuddly, soft little thing, right? And they smell, I don't even know, it's unbelievable. Right? It's intoxicating. You're like, what is going on here? I don't even like babies. Oh, right? <laughs> I hate babies. You know what I'm getting at? Why do you make them so cuddly? I'm serious. And how do, you, how, does, how do you say that that baby was in a mother's womb for nine months, and then all of a sudden is, boom, here I am. How does that work? If that's not a miracle, how do you not look at that and see God? So even though, although babies have voices, big loud ones, because they're always screaming, God's creation technically is voiceless, but it has a voice. For God himself, as the Bible states, speaks to man through his creation. This is why folks like ourselves who are out there trying to evangelize the lost shouldn't be overly discouraged by the rejection we face. We shouldn't. I, I, it's good to remember these things because I'm just as guilty of it as any of you, I suppose. I get discouraged really easy now in a sense that... Um, it's just almost like an abomination that people are so negative. I mean, so bad now that people are charging into churches now, killing people. I mean, come on. Where's this world going? It's horrendous. But we shouldn't be discouraged by the rejection we face. The simple fact is that every person who's ever lived has known that God exists. Every person who's ever lived has known that God exists. How do I know? 
because God told me that's the way it is. And God is good. And God would never sentence anyone to the lake of fire otherwise. He'd be unjust. That's how I know every person who's ever lived has known that God exists. Now, they may say differently, and their heart may be hardened now to the point where it really is a reality to them. But I know, and I have faith, that that is a very true statement because that's what the Bible tells me, and that's God's revelation. And then I look at the Rocky Mountains and deep space and earth and everything else, and I say, what are you guys thinking? Seriously, what are you guys thinking? We came from apes, and we're just dumb, like we, we were amoebas, and we walked out of the water one day, and there's this big bang that came out of nothing, by the way. That's what you want us to believe now? Man's conscience with creation. How about this? Someone might argue that beholding God's creation is one thing, but understanding it in the context of salvation is another thing altogether, but they'd be wrong. You know why? Because God also created every person with a conscience. And conscience, by definition, fundamentally means you have the ability to tell between right and wrong. So that argument's garbage. They presuppose that God hasn't instilled a conscience in man, which is an ability to discern right and wrong, a la Romans 2.14. In other words, in light of God's glory, it's impossible for man's conscience not to be convicted. Paul wrote about this. Go to Romans 2.14. Romans 2.14. You see, that's the beauty of the way God reveals himself. He said, I'm the creator here. I'm going to make it so that everybody here knows that I exist. And then I'm going to make the gospel apparent to them because my spirit's going to make it so. And when they say no to that, it's blasphemy. That's what we call blasphemy of the spirit. When you call God the Holy Spirit a liar, whose very ministry, whose precious ministry is to convict each and every person of the gospel truth. But what takes a person to the gospel truth? What gets a person to think they need a Savior, knowing that God exists and having a conscience? Paul wrote about this, Romans 2.14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts alternatively, alternatively, accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So Paul wrote about it. Man is given a conscience. Again, the point on the board. Man's conscience against creation. Someone might argue that beholding God's creation is one thing, but understanding it in the context of salvation is another thing altogether. But they'd be wrong. They presuppose that God hasn't instilled a conscience in man. In other words, God didn't finish his work in drawing people to him. The point is that God uses his witness through creation along with the conscience he has designed and installed in every man to convict them of their humble estate before the sovereign God of the universe. 
again, the point is, I mean, if we didn't have a conscience, if we didn't have a sense of awareness of our smallness, what would we say? We'd say, wow, those are pretty mountains. That's pretty cool. The stars are pretty cool. But God didn't leave it that way. He gave us a conscience. He said, you will know me. And you'll know it's right to believe that I exist. You'll know that. And you'll know it's wrong to deny that I exist. That is in every human being that was ever made. Otherwise, he'd be unjust. Because there would be some people floating around saying, hmm. So the point is that God uses his witness, his revelation through creation, along with the conscience he has designed and installed in every man to convict them of their humble estate before the sovereign of the universe. This echoes of the Spirit's teaching over the past couple of years on the importance of repentance in the gospel presentation. For if a person never listens to the conscience God has given them regarding their own depravity, let's say, in light of the Almighty God, then they won't ever be compelled to seek Jesus Christ. If they're not convicted, if they're not convinced, so to speak, of their depravity, why would they ever be compelled to seek Jesus Christ? If they don't understand the sovereignty of God through His revelation, why would they ever be compelled to seek a Savior? This is how people were saved before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, remember, that they didn't have the special revelation of Him, Jesus Christ, as Old Testament saints, you have to remember that, which means that they had to believe something less detailed, beginning with the voice of creation. They were drawn similarly, the same way. For example, Solomon lived prior to Christ's incarnation, right? And he was saved. What did he say about the concept of eternal life, something every believer receives, a la John 3.16? Go to Ecclesiastes 3.11. Ecclesiastes 3.11 what did he say about eternal life or eternity? Not even eternal life, just eternity itself. The idea that eternity exists. In other words, that once you realize that eternity exists, you realize that there's got to be life after death, right? Which means now you start contemplating, well, what about life after death? Well, I suppose it's up to the God who created all these things, the one who, who has witnessed to me through general revelation. So I guess, I guess I'll seek him. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. You see it? He set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So who put eternity, who put the idea of eternity on man's heart or in man's heart? God did, our creator. So just think about that. Solomon states here that God has placed an understanding of eternal life even, or at least eternity, in the heart of man, even the unregenerate. So just to bring these three things together under the umbrella of general revelation up here in the board. We've covered these things. Let's just sort of synthesize a little bit. God witnesses to himself through creation. God creates man with a conscience, ability to know right and wrong. 
and he sets eternity in man's heart. Do you see that's the recipe? That's the recipe. God witnesses to himself through creation and says, yeah, this is me, this is my work. It's okay to feel little because you are. I want you to feel little. I want you to feel my sovereignty. I want you to understand my glory through creation even. I'm going to give you a good conscience, the ability to know right and wrong. And then I'm going to set eternity in your heart, which means you understand there's much more to this than just 70 or 80 years or whatever of life. That's a recipe to lead you somewhere. And if you say no, you are without excuse. That's what we just read in Romans 1. If you say no, God doesn't exist, then you are without excuse. So this would be the cause for a person to cry out to the Lord, save me please, Father in heaven. This is the step, if you would. So reflect, just reflecting for a moment. It's the same prayer I find myself praying daily nowadays, even as a believer. Because in both uses of the word for salvation, we must understand this. I pray for it all the time. Save me, deliver me from this or that, whatever is on my heart. And I'm a believer. I say, Father, save me. Lord, save me from this situation, this thought, this sin that's entangled me, this whatever. Why? Because God saves. And when you understand the enormity of God, even through general revelation, you know he's the right place to turn to. Why? Because you've got a good conscience towards him. God saves. He purposely reveals his own glory through creation to creatures, man, that have the God-given faculties to comprehend it. To the humble man, this is the repentance part of the gospel, even. If God is this glorious, and I know who I am, I know I'm pretty wretched, then I need a Savior. I need to repent. I need to denounce this self-life. This is what leads me there. Understanding God's sovereignty, His glory, all of it. The faith part in Christ is, or the faith in part is in Christ, our Redeemer. So that's that two-sided coin we always talk about, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. What leads us to repentance? Well, this is the first step, general revelation, understanding that God exists. You know who else understood that? Job, Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. He understood that God saves. And therefore, he was saved. And Jesus Christ hadn't been around yet. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Again, Job lived long before the incarnation of Christ, yet somehow, not by magic, but by God's more limited revelation of himself, Job was a believer in Christ. That is the power of what we call in theology revelation, or specifically in context here, general revelation. It has driven every last one of us to the gospel of Christ both Old Testament and New Testament believers alike. It's how it starts. It's how we know. 
It's how our, we're affirmed. Is there a God? Yeah, there is a God. Look around. I mean, even today, don't you look around? Isn't it encouraging to look around even as a believer and say, there really is a God. Have you not said that to each other? Oh, my word, there must be a God. Look at, look at that sunset. Or look at, look at the way the rain fell or, you know, whatever you're being corny about. Look at this thing or look at that. You guys aren't laughing at any of my jokes. This is horrible. This is tragic. This is good material on some planet. <laughs> that is the power of revelation. It's driven every last one of us to the gospel of Christ, regardless of era or time. But one last thing um, before we close to state very clearly so that no one hearing this message becomes confused. General revelation is not the gospel. People are not saved by knowing that God exists. That's a fact. General revelation is part of God's plan to reveal himself to man, to motivate him, to usher him to the gospel to usher them towards the idea of repentance, to understand the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, to, so that we are well positioned for the gospel presentation. But that's what it is. General revelation is not the gospel. People are not saved by it. Romans 10, 5 to 17, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5. Go to Romans 10, 5. Romans 10.5. How do we know? Because the Bible says so. And how do we know it's good thinking? Because God is good. Romans 10.5. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, you notice these are Old Testament quotes, remember. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's an Old Testament reference that even speaks to Christ. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Old Testament reference even speaks to Christ. Now, Jesus didn't have his name yet, but who were they calling to? Christ, Messiah, Savior, Lord. It's the same concept. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who saves? God saves. Who is Jesus Christ? God. Do we forget these things? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who, who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. 
However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? All Old Testament. You see all that Old Testament scripture in there, all those caps? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Up here on the board, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. DJ talked about this on Sunday. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, the final point the Spirit's making on the topic of general revelation is this. General revelation is not the gospel. God may reveal himself through creation, but that's not the gospel. You are not saved by just saying, I believe God exists. There's a lot of people that believe God exists. But Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. So Christ has always been the issue. Not just that someone says, I believe that God exists. They may look at the same mountain and go, yeah, there's definitely a God. And they might call themselves something like an agnostic or something like that. They believe in the higher power or there's a God that created these things and it's impossible. They don't believe in evolution, this kind of thing. So they believe in a God like ours or they're getting there. But without Christ, it's not going to happen. People are not saved by general revelation. Uh, let's, yeah, we've got time. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's the second scriptural reference. <clears throat> so do not be confused. There are two different forms of revelation. Again, we're still trying to establish what is good and who gets to define it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many uh, mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, there's an Old Testament uh, reference. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, 
For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. People are not saved by general revelation. People are saved by Christ, which is a special revelation, as we'll see. The Bible clearly speaks to the fact that a person must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. And that is not something that general revelation is designed to do. So, in closing, we might summarize what it is and then its purpose as follows. Up here on the board. General revelation, again. God witnesses to himself through creation. God creates man with a conscience, ability to know right and wrong. God sets eternity in man's heart. And then what about the purpose of general revelation then? It reveals the nature of mankind's creator, his holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, majesty, and glory. Arrogant man's failure to recognize this serves as an indictment against him. However, to the humble, it is on the pathway to salvation, but never the source. Again, I'll leave you with that. The purpose of general revelation, and again, general revelation is God reveals himself through creation. It reveals the nature of mankind's creator, his holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, majesty, and glory. Arrogant man's failure to recognize this serves as an indictment against him. Paul wrote there without excuse. However, to the humble, it is on the pathway to salvation, but never the source. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this moment in time to study your word, to have you revealed to us through Scripture, through your special revelation, the reality of general revelation, that we might understand it wholly, that we might understand it in context of the salvation messages and we might take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs them so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.